great to see you all. Welcome to the uh, Scottish Power Studio Theatre. My name's Brian Morton. Um, some of you, if you're, if you're Scots, might remember I used to have a, a programme on BBC Radio Scotland where I routinely spoke to writers three, four, five nights a week and routinely said to them, so you've got a new book out then. Um, I have a slightly different history with our special guest tonight. Um, the last three times I've spoken to him, he hasn't had a new book out. The last time we met, I think in this very space, um, the book that wasn't quite out yet was called Moy Sand and Gravel. Uh, this time it's a book called Horse Latitudes. So he's got nothing to sell you tonight, <laughs> though I'm quite sure if you join us in the signing tent afterwards he will be happy to sign copies of, uh, of previous books. It really is a very genuine pleasure to welcome back to Edinburgh, Paul Muldoon. Thank you despite very much. The, the, the rigorous timekeeping at the book festival was just about 30 seconds late coming in there because wherever Paul goes in the world, he meets half a dozen poets, a dozen old friends uh, that he hasn't seen for a, a, at least a week. Alan Jenkins, the TLS we met outside, was saying the most travelled poet in the, in the world. You're never, you're never out of an airport these days. I do travel quite a bit, that's for sure. Um, <coughs> we just had the great pleasure of coming through Iceland. I've always wanted to stop there for a day or two, take advantage of Iceland Air's uh, brilliant scheme. I don't work for them, by the way, uh, but uh, <coughs> whereby one can stop there for a day or two and, and take in a lava bed and uh, a hot spring and all the rest of it. Uh, so anyway, yeah, in and, the, and, in and the air a certain amount. And, and pay the equivalent of three months' wages in a taxi. Pay the equivalent of um, six months' wages. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you, I, I was, I was sort of half joking and half serious about not having a new book out. I, I'm always intrigued what your relationship to the book is. It's coming, Horse Latitudes is out in October. Um, what's your relationship to it now? Where, where does it sit with you now? You know, uh, I should not be saying this, I'm certain, particularly when there are one or two uh, representatives of the great publishing company Faber and Faber in the house. But I, for me, it is pretty much over. And I'm thinking about um, the next poem and to some extent the, the next book, if ever, if ever such a thing comes around. Really the one I'm interested in is the next one. Uh, I'll be reading some poems from, from Horse Latitudes tonight, but at some level, as those of you who've uh, uh, written a poem or two will be well aware, at some level, when it's over, um, it's over. And the great uh, thrill of it all uh, is the process itself of the, the writing of the poem. And when it's over, uh, almost immediately, if indeed it is over, um, one wants the next one. It's, it's a habit. Uh, it's some kind of, uh, some kind of um, drug habit, I think, or something akin to it in my own case some sense of a buzz that one might get, and I'm sure there's a chemical uh, explanation for all of this, that drives uh, myself, certainly, to go towards that next hit, as I believe it might be known, in the drug trade. <laughs> and uh, I'm certain that uh, there's some physical um, 
response, uh, which might be akin to what Emily Dickinson described when she talked about the impact uh, of a poem, uh, how one recognized a poem when one knew that uh, the top of one's head was being taken off. And uh, that form of trepanning, uh, I suppose, um, could become pleasurable uh, after a while. And uh, I, certainly some kind of kick which one is getting again and again. I'm sure it's the, the habitual aspect of that. Um, the habit-forming aspect of it, which is uh, part of what, what being a writer, uh, or perhaps a large part of it, uh, might, might be. Yeats has a great line about that. A man dabbles in verses, or a woman, no doubt, dabbles in verses, and they become his or her life. Part of the same thing. So in that sense... Uh, you know, obviously, when you speak of the book, whether, whether, you know, if one is between books, as it were, at some level I like to think that the book itself does uh, have its own organic life in the way that the poem does, uh, that uh, over a period of three or four or five or ten years, whatever it might take, that actually one's range of obsessions the core of one's uh, personality probably shifts ever so slightly as well as remaining constant and something of that is reflected in in uh, in a collection of poems um, which I try to allow to grow on, on that organic basis so that already as I was suggesting earlier on I have a little black folder as so many poems as so many poets do as you know we're issued with them uh, at birth, and uh, you know, when I have one poem, I keep it in there, a certain amount of ceremony attached to it, and when I have two poems, I keep them together, and I wonder which should come first. And then by the time one's up to three, of course, it's really problematic. Uh, when they begin to speak to each other, if one's lucky, and uh, and uh, the order in which they might be read begins to mean something different. Um, so that's where I am at the moment. I hope you're going to read something Been, for uh, us. Delighted to tonight. do that. Um, when you talk about putting together a collection, and it's similar, it's akin, I suppose, to when musicians, and musicians, I can tell you, feature very prominently in uh, in the new collection, both Bob Dylan and Warren Zevon, and possibly other names we might talk about later. Thank you. Um, musicians often do that. They sit and they, they, they throw the names of tracks down on the table. And they well, in the old days of LPs, it was five tracks on one side, six on the other, and they, they shuffle them around. What is it that tells you that you've got the order, you've got the sequence, you've got the, the book, rather than just a discontinuous series of, of poems? Is, is, there, is there some extra music that, that, that comes across it, do you think? Well, I suppose there, <coughs> there at, certainly at some point there's a sense that there's an arc, that there's a, an architecture uh, <coughs> to, to the book that uh, whereby some kind of argument uh, is, is being presented. Um, 
and it may be a fairly basic chronological uh, description, an historical description, uh, a geographic split as it was in the, the last book I did, Moissand and Gravel, between the US and Ireland. Um, I think it varies and of course looking back uh, over the, the books I've published, in many instances if I read them at all I can't actually remember what the basis of the arc was or what the architecture was. It seemed to make sense for a moment certainly and I suppose it was at that moment that it went off, off into the world. So it varies. L let's at this point, we'll, we'll maybe talk again in a few minutes. At this point, let's let's hear something from the, okay. the new collection. Good. Thank you. I'm going to stand, if I may, to read these poems. Um, I'll begin with a few poems from a sequence of sonnets. Uh, a terrifying prospect, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> How long is this going to be? <laughs> you wonder. Sorry? Sorry? Did you say? Numbers of lines, yeah. Well, actually, the, one of the things about this uh, sequence is that I believe there are, th I think, I think one, I think there are thirteen yeah. in it. Thank you. There are thirteen in uh, sonnets in this sequence, but one of the terrifying, to me anyway, aspects of it is, and I'm sure it'll be terrifying, perhaps even more terrifying to you, is that it's a poem which in some sense takes as its subject matter tedium um, and after not very long becomes quite mimetic of its subject matter so tedium is built into it uh, again this is not a tantalising way to begin a poetry reading <laughs> but, but we'll see what, what I thought we might do but read a few of them and then break away and then come back to relieve the tedium. <laughs> now you really begin to wonder what you're doing here. But anyway, here we go. It's called The Old Country. It's, uh, I believe, primarily uh, a poem about Ireland. Certainly a country in which um, the language uh, has been debased in some way. Where there <coughs> seems to be a not entirely direct relationship between words and uh, their meanings. So, let's see how we get on. The Old Country, where every town was a tidy town, and every garden a hanging garden. A half could be had for half a crown. Every major artery would harden since every meal was a square meal. Every clothesline showed a line of undies, yet no house was in disabile. Every Sunday took a month of Sundays, till everyone got it off by heart. Every start was a bad start, since all conclusions were foregone. Every wood had its twist of woodbine, every cliff its herd of fatalistic swine. Every runnel was a Rubicon. Every runnel was a Rubicon and every annual, a hardy annual, applying itself like linen to a lawn. Every glove compartment held a manual 
and a map of the roads major and minor. Every major road had major road works. Every wishy-washy water diviner had stood like a bulwark against something worth standing against. The smell of incense left us incensed at the firing of the fort. Every heron was a presager of some disaster after which we'd wager every resort was a last resort. Every resort was a last resort with a harbour that harboured an old grudge. Every sail was a selling short. There were those who simply wouldn't budge from the dandy to the rover. That shouting was the shouting but for which it was all over. The weekend, I mean. We set off on an outing with the weekday train timetable. Every tower was a tower of Babel that graced each corner of a bawn, where every lookout was a poor lookout. Every rill had its unflashy trout. Every runnel was a Rubicon. Every runnel was a Rubicon, where every ditch was a last ditch. Every man was a grand wee mon, whose every pitch was another sail's pitch. Now every boat was a burned boat. Every cap was a cap in hand. Every coat a trailed coat. Every band was a gallant band across the broken bridge and broken ridge after broken ridge where you couldn't beat a stick with a big stick. Every straight road was a straight-up speed trap. Every decision was a snap. Every cut was a cut to the quick. You getting the idea? <laughs> One of the things about this poem, I think, was that I had much too much fun writing it. <laughs> Every cut, which is always a bad sign. Every cut was a cut to the quick when the weasel's twist met the weasel's tooth and Christ was somewhat impolitic in branding as weasels fighting in a hole forsooth. The petrol smugglers back in the old sod when a vendor of red diesel, for whom every rod was a green rod, reminded one and all that the weasel was nowhere to be found in that same quarter. No mere mortar could withstand a ten-inch mortar. Every hope was a forlorn hope. So it was that the defenders were taken in by their own blood splendor. Every slope was a slippery slope. Every slope was a slippery slope where every shave was a very close shave and money was money for old rope where every grave was a watery grave. Now every boat was again a burned boat. Every dime a dozen rat, a dime a dozen drowned rat except for the witrack or stoat which the very Norsemen had down pat as a weasel word, though we know their speech was rather slurred. Every time was time in the nick, just as every nick was a nick in time. Every unsheathed sword was somehow sheathed in rhyme. Every cut was a cut to the quick. Every cut was a cut to the quick, what with every feather, a feather to ruffle. 
Every witchrack was a witterick. Everyone was in a right kerfuffle when from his hob some hobbledy-hoy would venture the witterick was a curlew. Every wall was a wall of Troy, and every hunt a hunt in the purlieu of a domain so out of bounds. Every hound might have been a hellhound. At every lane end stood a milk churn, whose every dent was a sign of indenture to some pig wormer or cattle drencher. Every point was a point of no return. Every point was a point of no return for those who had signed the covenant in blood. Every fern was a maidenhair fern that gave every eye an eyeful of mud ere it was plucked out and cast into the flame. Every rowan was a mountain ash. Every swath swathed moor made of his graft a game and the haysash went to the kemper best fit to kemp. Every secretary was a temp who could shift shape like the river goddesses Banna and Bowen. Every two-a-penny maze was, at its heart, Minoan. Every escape was a narrow escape. Every escape was a narrow escape where every stroke was a broad stroke of an axe on a pig nape. Every pig was a pig in a poke, though it scooted once through the diamond. So, unfal so unfalteringly. The threshold of pain was outlimoned by the bar, raised at high tea. Now every scone was a drop scone. Every ass had an ass's jawbone that might itself drop from grin to gurn. Every malt was a single malt. Every pillar was a pillar of salt. Every point was a point of no return. I think I'll break away for it for a minute and we're getting it and come back to it. I mentioned every hound being a hellhound. Let me read a couple of little houndish poems. Um, and this first one has to do with uh, one of our dogs called Angus, uh, who uh, <coughs> we got on a... Uh, actually, we found him by over the internet, uh, petfinder.com, a fine, a fine, fine institution. Do you have it in this part of the world? I'm sure it's coming any day. <laughs> anyway, this dog had been languishing in a, uh, in a um, kennel or a shelter on, on, in uh, New York State, and we picked him up and uh, took him home. And he, was, he, was, he started off terrifically well. Uh, though about a fortnight after I had him, I was sitting one night on a porch um, in Vermont, and I was there, and the dog was at my feet, which is a good sign in a dog, but uh, probably just about the back of the room here, wandering along, um, came a coyote. And, strange moment. Um, the dog didn't notice the coyote. He just lay on. The co which was disturbing. Uh, even more disturbing in its way was the fact that uh, 
the, the, the coyote didn't seem to notice either the dog or myself uh, in the sense, disturbing in the sense that one expects more of a coyote, I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, it was a strange moment. I couldn't quite get my head around what was happening, and I suppose this poem is a, an attempt to do that. Can you hear me okay, by the way? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> the coyote, veering down the track like a girl veering down a cobbled street in the meatpacking district. High heels from the night before, black shawl of black-tipped hairs, steering clear of that fluorescent ring spray-painted on an even stretch of blacktop, like a ring in which we might once have played keepsies Veering down the track without the slightest acknowledgement from Angus, the dog lying in a heap on our porch, like a heap of clothes lying beside a bend. Angus, who had himself been found wandering by the highway, somewhere on the far side of Lake Champlain. Slubber-furred, slammerkin, backbone showing through. And though we didn't know it when we brought him home, blind in one eye, the right one, the one between him and the coyote, the cloudy, flaw-fleckered marble of that eye, now turning on you and me, taking in the spray-painted ring where you and I knuckle down. And this next one uh, features the same the same fella. Um, Angus is mostly hound, and like most members of the hound family, loves to bay. And uh, most of the time, one doesn't hear him. Of course, there's nothing, no reason to to uh, howl. But from time to time, there is a, quite a distinct reason, it seems, for him to get started. <coughs> and that, of course, is when uh, an alarm of some kind goes off in the vicinity. It might be an ambulance. It might be a fire truck, fire engine something that makes a huge amount of noise in any event. And this dog uh, tries to get himself in sync with it. He tries to get himself in tune with it, uh, which is troubling. Uh, you know, one, uh, one never quite gets used to it, but uh, it often explains, one hears him and thinks, ah, there must be an accident somewhere, somewhere down the road, because uh, he can hear them for quite a distance, as you know. Anyway, I used the phrase a forlorn hope in in uh, the interminable poem, and uh, I hadn't realised, I think, until I was writing that, what exactly a forlorn hope was, though it's a phrase uh, one's probably used once or twice in one's life. Um, and I discovered, as you, as, as you probably know, that it, it refers to a group of um, warriors, soldiers, sent out or volunteering sometimes 
to uh, go into the most dangerous part of a battle, or a battle that's about to begin, uh, with almost, almost certainly not coming back, a forlorn hope. Now pitching himself like a forlorn hope. Now pitching himself like a forlorn hope in a pitched battle. Angus howls and howls from his heavy duty berserker call. His hound voice not quite managing to cope with his not quite having managed to brace himself against this latest call to arms. As it happens, the Grigstown fire alarm, till he does some manner of about face, quite in step with his old messmate Soren, who forward lives, yes, forward lives his life, but only backward hears the police siren articulate the exit ramp jackknife of a tractor-trailer. A trailer rife with ricin or mustard gas or sarin. Um, this next one set in uh, St Andrews, though it um, <coughs> refers to the uh, institution of the hedge school the school uh, conducted in the, I guess, uh, 17th, 18th centuries in Ireland um, in the hedge or a barn, a byre, uh, behind a wall, some rudimentary uh, structure. Uh, oft, often uh, for... Uh, though not exclusively for Catholic children um, who, who weren't really allowed to have a uh, an education um, or meant to have an education so it begins with uh, begins in uh, St Andrews and goes back to um, some sense of that phenomenon Hedge School not only those rainy mornings our great-great-grandmother was posted at a gate with a rush mat over her shoulders, a mat that flashed papish like a heliograph. But those rainy mornings when my daughter and the rest of her all-American Latin class may yet be forced to conjugate Guantanamo, a mass, a mat and learn with Luciana how headstrong liberty is lashed with woe. All past and future mornings were impressed on me just now, dear sis, as I sheltered in a doorway on Church Street in St Andrews, where in 673 another Mweldoon was bishop and try to come up with a ruse for unsealing the new shorter Oxford English Dictionary back in that corner shop and tracing the root of metastasis. 
My sister uh, died uh, just over a year ago, and I wrote this poem as she was coming towards the end of her life, and she figures in it uh, largely. <coughs> but uh, the centre of the poem, I suppose, in some in more obvious way, though not truly, is a bird which... Uh, Is began in the southeast corner of the United States. Was um, native there for um, for a number of years, early in the twentieth century, and but has now uh, pretty much taken over the country. And the bird is uh, the turkey buzzard. And one theory about uh, why this bird has done so well in the US, which you may have come across, uh, has, to, has to do with a fantastic highway system uh, set up by uh, Ike, of course, after... Uh, uh, and uh, these bo uh, birds are great, uh, great followers of uh, roadkill. Um, though they're not, you know, they're picky. The, the uh, roadkill has to be, it has to have a, a sell-by date on it, as it were. If there's a particular moment when it's at its best. Don't ask me what it is. Uh, but I do remember when I was boning up in this, uh, trying to write this poem. Uh, two or three days, I think, is best. It's not really meant to be, uh, you know, to have... To have uh, have gone too far. Uh, eat, mind you, these birds are capable of eating almost anything. Um, and uh, often farmers will put, it seems, will put out um, cattle, say, that have, uh, that have uh, died of uh, a disease that uh, uh, would otherwise be difficult to uh, eradicate. Um, they, they can deal, for example, with rabies, which most of us can't, I suppose. Uh, quite extraordinary animals. So there's a poem having to do with them. Turkey buzzards. They've been so long above it all. Those two petals, so steeped in style, they seem to stall in the kettle simmering over the town dump. Or, better still, the neon-flashed, X-rated rump of fresh roadkill, courtesy of the interstate that Eisenhower would overtake in the home straight by one horsepower. The kettle where it all boils down to the thick scent of death, a scent of such renown it's given vent to the idea buzzards can spot a deer carcass a mile away, smelling the rot as once Marcus Aurelius wrinkled his nose at a gas leak from the great sewer that ran through Rome to the Tiber, then went searching out through the loam, one subscriber to the other of you, that the rose, full-blown, antique, its no-frills rough, the six-foot shrug of its swing wings, 
the theologians and the thugs, twin triumphings in a buzzard shaved head and snood, buzz buzz buzzy. Its logic in all likelihood somewhat fuzzy. Would ever come into focus, it ever deign to dispense its hocus pocus in that same vein as runs along an inner thigh to where, too right, the buzzard vouchsafes not to shy away from shite, its mission not to give a miss to a bete noir, all roly-poly, full of piss and vinegar, trying rather to get to grips with the grommet of the gut, setting its tin snips to that grommet in the spray-painted hind's hind gut, and making a sweeping, to write a sweeping cut that's so blasé it's hard to imagine, dear sis, why others shrink from this sight of a soul in bliss, so in the pink from another month in the red of the shambles, like a rose in over its head among brambles. Unflappable in its belief, its Ararat, on which the ark would come to grief, abjuring that Marcus Aurelius humbug about what springs from earth, succumbing to the tug at its heartstrings, reported to live past fifty, as you yet may, dear sis. Perhaps growing your hair in requital though briefly, of whatever tears at your vitals. Learning, perhaps, from the nifty, nay, thrifty way these buzzards are given to stoop and take their ease by letting their time-chastened poop fall to their knees till they're almost as bright with lime as their night roost, their poop containing an enzyme that's known to boost their immune systems should they prong themselves on small bones in a cerebral cortex at no small cost to their well-being, sinking fast in a dear crypt, buzzards getting the hang at last of being stripped of their command of the vortex while having lost their common touch. They've been so long above it all. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is a little uh, poem, just the last poem I wrote, most recent poem I wrote, and uh, down to the other end of the scale. Um, remember, as a teenager, uh, being very taken by the, the poems of D.H. Uh, Lawrence. And that poem about the hummingbird, in which he talks about how we look at the hummingbird um, um, through the wrong end of the telescope of time. I think I'm not quite remembering it accurately, but um, <clears throat> this same part of Vermont where we spend some of the summer, the hummingbird. Um, 
despite the fact, it was just astonishingly, it was raining quite a lot there this summer, the hummingbirds were out. They come from Mexico, from South America, and they fly up there to Vermont. Extraordinary um, persistence. Oh, I'm not, they probably don't think of it as persistence. That's just, that's what they do, I suppose. There's a little, uh, little poem set at a Labor Day uh, weekend party where you might still get the odd little uh, hummingbird who hasn't quite uh, struck out back down south to uh, Mexico and Central America or Central America. So anyway, um, it's a series of overheard uh, snippets of conversation. Uh, so it's kind of hard to read because you're not sure who's speaking, but then we're, even if you're reading it on the page, you wouldn't be quite sure. Little snippets of conversation. A hummingbird. At Nora's first post-divorce Labor Day bash. There's a flutter and a fuss and a fidget. Note the alliteration. There's a fluster and a fuss and a fidget in the fuchsia bells. Two fingers of sour mash, a maraschino cherry. So the digits still a unit of measurement, while midgets continue to demand a slice of the cake. A vibrator, you know, that kind of widget. Now a ruby-throated hummingbird remakes itself as it rolls on through mid-forest break. I'm guessing she's had a neck lift and lipo. You know, I still can't help but think of the wake as the apogee, you know, of the typo. Like an engine rolling on after a crash long after whatever it was made a splash. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How are we doing there, Sue? Do you want to have a chatter? Yeah, go Okay, um, now let me see. Um, this um, next one, which I had to hand a moment ago, It is what it is. It is what it is. The popping underfoot of the bubble wrap in which Asher's new toy came. Popping like bladder rack on the foreshore of a country toward which I've been rowing for 50 years. My peeping from behind a tamarind at the peeping ox and ass, the flyer for a pantomime, the inlaid cigarette box, the shamrock-painted jug, the New Testament bound in red leather lying open, Lordy, on her lap, while I mull over the rules of this imperspicuous game that seems to be missing one piece. 
if not more. Her voice at the gridiron, coming and going, as if snatched by a sea wind. My mother, shipping out for good, for good this time. The game, the plaything spread on the rug, the 50 years I've spent trying to put it together. Hi, um, this one's called At Least They Weren't Speaking French. And it has a couple of words that may be known to you in this part of the world uh, in the way that they wouldn't uh, in, in uh, outside uh, Ireland or Scotland, I think. Though very not much used in Ireland, certainly, nowadays. And the words are Sowens. Sowens. Yes, Sowens. The, uh, the dish also known as flummery. Excellent. That's all we need to know. A dish, a dish eaten round Samhain, eaten round Halloween times. Um, I suppose, I mean, I say, I ask myself, of course, if I know what it means myself, but I th I'm not sure if I do. It, ha it has to do, it's like a sort of husk of wheat and oats and porridge affair, something like that. Um, Sowens, Sowens. Anyway, here we go. At least... That's Halloween. Is that what it is? They must, you know, you always get the feeling that people are having a much better time somewhere <laughs> else. You know? You know? Well, what can we say? At least they weren't speaking French. One. That's troubling too, I know, when you hear one. What could that be? It's not the tattoo, is it? No. An, early, an early tattoo? <clears throat> At least they weren't speaking French. When my father sat with his brothers and sisters, two of each, on a ramshackle bench, at the end of a lane marked by two white stones, and made mouth music as they waited, chilled to the bone, falderall, falderall, falderallio, for the bus meant to bring their parents back from time. It came and went nothing. One sister was weighed down by the youngest child, a grocery bag from a town more distant still in troth. What started as a cough, falderall, falderall, falderaldio, would briefly push him forward to some minor renown, then shove him back, oddly summary, down along the trench to that far-flung realm where, at least, they weren't speaking French. Two, at least they weren't speaking French when another brother, twenty-something, stepped on a nail no one had bothered to clench in a plank thrown half-heartedly from the known to the unknown. Folderol, folderol, folderaldio. Across a drainage ditch on a building site his nut-brown arm, his leg nut-brown. That nail sheathed in a fine down would take no more than a week or ten days 
to burgeon from the froth of that piddling little runoff. Falderall, Falderall, Falderall Dio, and make of him a green and burning tree, his septicemia crown, Salmon's as much as he could manage, trying to keep that flummery down as much as any of them could manage. However they might describe the stench as exhalation, as odour, at least they weren't speaking French. At least they weren't speaking French when those twenty-something council workers, one with a winch, the other a wrench, would point my son and me to a long overgrown lane marked by two faded stones. Falderall, Falderall, Falderaldio. Like two white-faced clowns gaping at the generations who passed between them and set down bag after grocery bag, setting them on the table, the newspaper tablecloth, 1976, not the East Tyrone Brigade, not Bader Meinhof, Falderall, Falderall, Falderaldio, bringing the suggestion of a frown to those two mummer stones trying to lie low, trying to keep their mummery down to a bare minimum. Two stones that, were they to speak, might blench as much at their own giving out as our taking in that at least they weren't speaking French. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. This is a love poem. Thank you so much. Yeah, we've got about ten minutes. Uh, the mountain is holding out. The mountain is holding out for news from the sea. Of the red on the redoubt. The plain won't level with me. For news from the sea is harder and harder to find. The plain won't level with me. Now it's non-aligned and harder and harder to find. The forest won't fill me in, now it too is non-aligned and its patience wearing thin. The forest won't fill me in nor the lake confess to its patience wearing thin. I no more try to guess why the lake might confess to a regard for its own sheen. No more try to guess why the river won't come clean on its regard for its own shame than why you and I faced off across a ditch. For the river not coming clean is only one of the issues on which you and I faced off across a ditch. And the red on the redoubt, only one of the issues on which the mountain is holding out. 
And I think I'll end that little sequence of uh, poems. If you remember, we were in the midst of the... Uh, where we got to? Very hard to find a way back into it. 515. Thank you. Uh, what did we see? Oh, I think that's what it was. Yes. Every point was a point of no return. Where to make a mark was to overstep the mark. Every bray had its own bra burn. Every meadow had its meadowlark that stood in for the laverock. Those Norse had tried fjord after fjord to find a tight wee place to dock. When he made a scourge of small wind cords, Christ drove out the money lenders and all the other bitter enders when the thing to have done was take up the slack. When was to furs as furs was to gorse. Every hobbledy hoy had his hobbledy hobby horse. Every track was an inside track. Every track was an inside track where every horse had the horse sense to know it was only a glorified hack. Every graining of gratitude was immense, and every platitude a familiar platitude. Every kempel of hay was a kempel tossed in the air by a haymaker in a hay feud. Every chair at the barn dance, a musical chair, given how every paltry poltroon and his paltry dog could carry a tune, yet no one would carry the can any more than Samson would carry the temple. Every spinal column was a collapsing stemple. Every flash was a flash in the pan. Every flash was a flash in the pan and every border a herbaceous border unless it happened to be an herbaceous border as observed by the recorder or recorded by the observer. Every witty stemmed from a willow bowl. Every fervour was a religious fervour by which we'd fly the God-forsaken hole into which we'd been flung by it. Every pit was a bottomless pit out of which every pig needed a piggyback. Every cow had subsided in its subsidy. Biddy winked at Paddy and Paddy winked at Biddy. Every track was an inside track. Every track was an inside track and every job an inside job. Every witterick had been a witrack until from his hobbledy hob that hobbledy hobbledy hoy had insisted the witterick was a curlew. But every boy was still one of the boys and every girl your girl you for whom every dance was a last dance, and every chance a last chance, and every letdown a terrible letdown. From the days when every list was a laundry list, in that old country where we reminisced, every town was a tidy town. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank well, thank you. you very much indeed. Now, we've, we've got, I suppose, ten minutes left for uh, questions from the floor. There's a microphone over here, so do stick your hands up. Um, 
if you have anything you want to ask. Right down the front, on the right here. Hello. Uh, at home I've got a long bookshelf that's creaking and groaning, mostly with your books, alongside uh, famous Seamus's and Michael Longley. And every time I look at the bookshelf I think, what an amazing trio. Uh, and when looking through your poems and, and then at the very recent ones, I've always thought with nearly all of your poems that um, you're writing with your head uh, um, actually in the north of Ireland. And in fact, that old country poem, that interminable poem, <laughs> for me, is a very good portrait of the, of the north of Ireland, a great portrait mm. of it in an abstract way. But um, it seems to me also that great poetry and great poets are very uh, much based in some place in their uh, in their country of, uh, in their country of origin, and even when you're writing from the states, it feels almost like a postcard that you're sending home or that you're retrieving for home. Is that something that's still very true for you, or are you are you breaking free of that by the amount of time that you're away, or is it always going to be important? Well, I think it's always going to be uh, central. I mean, always. Who knows? But. Uh, I, I I spent the first 35 years of, of my life there and I still, I guess the image that is still strongest for me, that the view that is still strongest for me, I suppose is the view out of the house, the window of the house I was brought up in. Um, even though I've <coughs> looked through a number of other windows. That's, that's the one that's still kind of scorched there on the retina. Um, and I suppose, uh, you know, making sense of that place and that time, perhaps, uh, as well as this one, that family, uh, is something that you know, I think, you know, whether or not, quite independently of whether or not we're uh, writers, that we tend to keep on doing for... for um, most of uh, our lives. What was it that happened to us in there, in the family of origin? What was going on? Ah, we see when, we were, when we're 55 or 60 or 65, that's what was going on for in that, in that, in that, for that moment. Uh, there's some kind of clarification, which I th you know, informs us for the rest of our lives. Um, we're talking earlier, on, joking earlier on about the fifty-minute hour, <laughs> which uh, I mean, I think writing writing poetry, uh, perhaps even reading it, I mean, is an attempt to engage in in some version of uh, of uh, therapy, making sense of things, of who one is, where one's from, uh, where one's been, what what is it that makes up oneself and I think particularly if one has children what might one one might or might not be passing on to one's children um, so uh, having said that uh, a lot of the poems I suppose uh, are set in the US which is where I've lived for 20 years so a lot of them are set there and uh, bless you um, you know, I like to think that one can, uh, you know, live in the U.S., write write the odd poem set in Ireland, or thinking about Ireland, and who knows, maybe write a poem about Iceland, if the gods are with us or against us, who knows? Um, you know, that one that one tries to make sense of the various bits and pieces of one's life. Does that 
begin to answer your question. No, it doesn't really. You know, I think I mean that that particular place, that particular place, as we know, is just to make sense of that uh, place. Uh, it's not settling. Well, it's very. It's, it either makes no sense, or it makes, or it's very simple. And I suppose we like to think that it's not very simple, yeah. though there are many occasions when it looks very simple. But I think yeah, there were a couple of people. Yeah, here. somebody yeah. above uh, the yes. back here. So, um, I wanted to ask you about a particular poem actually, yes. which is one of my favourites. It's called "As," um, yes. which your that your sonnet sequence reminded me of a little bit, a very yeah. Irish poem and lots of wordplay and. I don't, I don't know if it's possible for you to read that tonight, that poem. It would be amazing if you could. But it's too uh, long, I'm afraid. All right, uh, we've already tested yeah, yeah. your <laughs> patience, I think. Um, <laughs> am I right in thinking that uh, there's a similarity there in in, uh, in these poems? And, and also, who is the you that you give way to in the refrain of the poem? Whoever happens to be around. You. <laughs> um, um, when I'm... When I'm uh, sometimes I jokingly suggest to my wife that it's her, but only jokingly. Um, I think uh, you know it's that that poem is meant to be a bit of fun. I mean, uh, I like to think that one of the things a poem may do is to have a bit of fun. I know that for many people, the idea that a poem might be humorous is is problematic. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that is the case, but it, it is the case that somehow there's a feeling that um, having having a little bit of fun isn't quite what one should be doing in, within a poem. And uh, that that's a humorous poem, I would say. That's a, probably as much as it's more, almost more of a song than anything else. Uh, but I'm glad you like it. Thank you. Yeah, we've got one more. Uh -huh. I think that I'm afraid it's all with time for just now, but. You famously kind of set yourself very difficult rhyming constraints and things like that, and I'm just wondering um, why you write in that way and what, what it kind of what, what it opens up to you, basically. Um, yes, well, you know, I'd like to think the the the, uh, the official position on that, I suppose, is that the poems themselves determine uh, how they come into the world, but you know. Uh, on the other hand, it would be silly to suggest that a number of them, for example, um, don't uh, have uh, used templates that have been used in other poems, which is um, a strange business I can see myself, because ideally one would like to think that each poem is an in, you know, is a separate, as a discrete um, uh, adventure. And uh, and yet, uh, I, I suppose there's some aspect of the the difficulty that I find releasing, some sense of the uh, the pressure uh, under which uh, formal for what what is certainly conceived of and generally viewed of has been form formally pressurized structures. Uh, I find myself, uh, though it's a truism to say so, I do find it to be true that actually one can deal then in quite charged emotional uh, material, you know? I mean, uh, we've heard that a million times, uh, and yet somehow it, it I, th 
I think it is true, uh, certainly for me in some poems anyway. Um, I suppose I'm, much, I'm naturally drawn to these traditional received shapes. I think, as we are as children, for example, you know, uh, and some of these devices, my son who's seven said to me the other day, do you use alliteration in your poems? He'd heard about that. I heard about this at school. But you know, even young, younger children naturally rhyme, for example. It depends whether or not one thinks that's something that's imposed on the language or on a poem. And some people do feel that, and, uh, and I understandably want to avoid that. Uh, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. But I, st I, like, I, I, I enjoy something of the... Uh, of the uh, of, you know, of the fun that may be had in these, uh, in these frameworks. And um, they're frameworks that are not uh, at all restrictive, as I was suggesting earlier on. If anything, one's given oneself over to the aleatory, to, you know, the pure, freaky, l lucky, uh, chancy, thing that's going to happen, because you really don't know what's going to happen. All the evidence would suggest that one knows in advance what's going to happen if one, uh, if one gives oneself over to one of these structures. But in fact, the precise opposite is true. Uh, having said that, very rarely do I sit down, uh, I mean, for example, when I sat down to write this, the, the sonnet sequence, as we were grandly calling it, I had no, I'd, had no idea that that's what I was going to be doing. I had a little phrase, every runnel was a Rubicon, and I just uh, went with it and, and found out where it took me. And those repetitions, uh, again, are part of, uh, part of something that's very, as far as I'm concerned, very basic to us, you know, that we have in our, in our riddles, in our prayers, in our chants, in our nursery rhymes, in our songs, our nonsense songs. And it just happens to be an, as an aspect of poetry that I'm, one aspect of poetry that I'm interested in. I don't know, there's a huge question, that's a very partial answer to it, but a little bit of an answer to it. I'm afraid our uh, psychoanalytic hour is, is up. I hope you will join us in the, uh, in the signing tent um, immediately after this. Just remains for me to thank, once again, huge pleasure as always, Paul Muldoon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed.